Well, for the last month or so, I have had this reoccurring dream, and it's, uh, it's a dream that takes place back in high school, and, uh, and it's really, it's a nightmare, actually, uh, because I, I go to this math class, and the math class gets to be pretty overwhelming to me, and so then I just stop attending the class, um, but as I, as I go further and further along not attending the class, my anxiety level starts to rise because I know that it's all building on, on what's happened in the class before, and so eventually I'm going to have to show back up at class, and I'm going to have to take the exam, and I'm going to fail. And I'm going to be proved to be a fraud, to be an imposter, and that I'm not going to be able to measure up. And so I've been having this dream about once or twice a week for the last several weeks. And, uh, and this isn't unlike an experience that I had in real life. Uh, when I was in seminary, um, I took Greek, and I got behind in Greek, and so I just stopped going to my Greek class uh, because a lot of times the teacher would call on you, and you'd have to translate on the spot. And, and, I, and I just didn't like the feeling of knowing that I didn't, I didn't know it and that I, that I wasn't good enough, that I, that I couldn't measure up. And so I just stopped going to my Greek class, and, um, and so, uh, of course, when it came time for the final, um, I, I failed, and, uh, and so I had to take Greek again, uh, and the second time I took Greek, I got a D. Um, so, uh, when, when I bring up something about the original Greek in a sermon, just know it's still pretty much all Greek to me. So, all right, so, so it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's when I say, when I talk about the Greek language, it's because I'm very thankful for very good commentaries. So, with that being said, let's look at our text for today in English. This is James. We are in the second chapter, and we're going to start reading in the 14th verse. What good is it, my brothers and sister? If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is God's word. And I'm going to be honest with y'all. I really don't like the book of James. I really, I honestly don't. Uh, I think the reason I'm having this reoccurring nightmare is because James makes me think I'm not going to measure up. And so I've always disliked James. In fact, Jim was the one who wanted us to teach through James this summer, not me. So, so this was not my doing. And I can pretty much tell 
by what your favorite book of the Bible is, if we're gonna, how, how close we're gonna be, what our personality is gonna be. If you love Galatians, I gotcha. You and me, we're gonna be tight. If James is your favorite book, we can still be friends, but, but it's not gonna be easy, okay? Because I do not like James, and I'm not alone in that. In fact, one of my heroes, uh, Martin Luther, who I talk about a lot uh, in, in my sermons, uh, the man who was part of uh, the leadership that started the Protestant Reformation, uh, he hated James as well. In fact, he called the letter of James an epistle of straw. He had such a distaste for the book of James. He even thought that it, it, it wasn't valid to be included. He, he really struggled with the validity of it and being included as God's inspired word because it only mentions the name of Jesus twice and in no part of it does it talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. And he especially wrestled with the part of James that we're looking at today, the text that we just read. But this wasn't just about theology and doctrine for Martin Luther. It was personal. You see, Martin Luther had been freed by what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letters in the New Testament, by what the Apostle Paul had written about the gospel, about being justified before a holy God, not through anything that you and I, that we can do, but through faith in Jesus, his son, and what he did on our behalf. And Martin Luther, as, as a young man, lived a life as a self-denying monk. And on the outside, he looked like the most faithful follower of Christ. But in reality, he hated God. He hated God for setting an unattainable standard that he could never live up to. But because Martin Luther couldn't deny the existence of God, he kept striving to try to please this unpleasable God. He would often inflict self-harm as, as punishment on himself for the, the ways he had fallen short. One time he was even found outside, barely clothed, lying in the snow in the coldest parts, of, in the coldest time of winter. He had to be brought in uh, and almost died. And maybe you aren't as neurotic as Martin Luther. And maybe your self-harm isn't as blatant. But I know I'm not the only one who struggles with self-hate for not measuring up. I'm not, I know I'm not the only one who has a dream that you show up somewhere unprepared and, and, and prove to the world that you're not good enough. And maybe you're, you're not a Christian, so your standard is not about who God is or what God's word says, but maybe it's, it's a standard put on you by our culture. Maybe you live in fear that you'll be found out at work, uh, that, that those around you will, will see you as a fraud, will see that you're not nearly as brilliant or as necessary to the business as you present yourself to be. Or, or maybe you've believed the standards set in our culture for beauty and masculinity. And maybe you're trying desperately hard to achieve that. And maybe outwardly you're having some success, but inwardly and at night when you're alone, you think this, this actually isn't as fulfilling as I thought. My, my six-pack doesn't love me as much as I thought it would, right? And I, I can't say that from experience. I've, I've never met my six-pack, so maybe it would give me love. But, but we're all kind of striving to measure up in some way. Maybe we're trying so hard to be relevant. We want to be on top of every issue that's happening. We want to be on the right side of history in every possible way. But in reality, we're exhausted with trying to keep up with what it means to be relevant. We're all trying to measure up to something. 
I spent so many years uh, looking so good and faithful on the outside, but in the inside, I was scared to death of God. I was scared to death that, that he actually would turn me away. I was so scared that my secret sins, the real ones and the imagined ones, would, would end up causing me to be disqualified from God's love. I lived in constant fear of being found out. So for Luther and for me, the gospel that says we are saved by faith alone because of the work of Christ alone is not just about theology or doctrine. It is life or death. Listen, if I'm wrong about the gospel and it's not really all about grace, I'm done. Like, there, I, like I can't do it. Like I've tried. I've done that, that, that process of trying to measure up. And so if that is what's required, I'm out. But James is still part of God's work. I can't just dismiss it. In fact, Martin Luther couldn't dismiss it either. Martin Luther was so um, adamant about people being able to read God's word for themselves. At the time that, that, he, was, uh, that he was alive, the, the scriptures weren't translated in the language of the people. It was in Greek and, and Aramaic and, and Hebrew and, and Latin. And so most common people couldn't read God's word. So Martin Luther wanted everyone to be able to read God's word. So he translated it into their language, into German. And when he did that, he did translate the book of James. He just put James at the very end of the Bible because he thought no one's going to actually make it all the way through the Bible, so they won't read it. Um, but he did include it. And I'm sure the verse that pained him the most to translate was a verse that we just read. Chapter 2, verse 24, a verse which seems to say it's not all about grace. This is what the verse says. You see, a person is considered righteous or justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, this seems like a contradiction to everything that the Apostle Paul wrote about the gospel. In Galatians 2, 15 and 16, Paul writes this, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In Romans 3, 28, Paul writes, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And in Ephesians, which we studied last summer, he says, For it is written that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. So what's going on here? Is this one of those examples of the Bible contradicting itself, and therefore it cannot be trusted? I would say no. In fact, I would say that James and Paul believed the exact same thing about salvation and about grace and about faith. We know that both James and Paul were part of the Jerusalem Council, uh, which is recorded in Acts 15. This is a historical event that took place in the early days of the church, not too long after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. This was at a time when Paul was just beginning his ministry to the Gentiles. The gospel was spreading out from, uh, from, from outside of kind of the Jewish culture. And James was even appointed to be the leader of the established church in Jerusalem, which had previously been under the leadership of the apostle Peter, the one whom Jesus looked at and said, upon you, I will build my church. And so they're all at this council. And you can look it up, you can read it for yourself in, in Acts 15. But in this council, they're discussing this very issue. 
this very issue of justification, how you and I, how we are saved. And, and they come to the conclusion that we are indeed saved by faith alone. As the discussion gets you know, ramped up and, and everyone's kind of talking, we're told the apostle Peter stands up and he declares before the room, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And then the text says, and the assembly fell silent. I assume, although the text doesn't say this, that Peter simply dropped the mic and walked off. <laughs> Peter looked at all these guys who are, who are debating whether or not, uh, you know, what part our works play in our own salvation. And he says, no, it's all about grace, y'all. And James was there. And James agreed. Peter entrusted the first church to James. So this isn't a disagreement. James, what is James doing? Well, if you only look at things through one eye, you lose depth perception, right? You need two eyes looking at the same object to see it fully. Because each eye is looking from a slightly different perspective. And the result of that is that you see better. James and Paul are both talking about our justification, but they're talking about it from a slightly different perspective. And the more I've read James, and I've, I've read James more than I have in my whole life in the last few months as we've been studying this, what I'm beginning to sense about James is that James was kind of a first century, like shock jock kind of pastor. Like he was the kind of pastor that, that loved to say things to get a reaction, and in that way, he was very much like Martin Luther, who often said shocking things so that it would cause people to stop and think and reevaluate. See, James is intentionally being disruptive with this verse, but not to contradict, but so that you and I, that we can see better. Although James and Paul are using similar words and similar structure, they are meaning something slightly different by the word justified. In the Greek justified can be used to mean different things, just like it can in English. Paul uses the word justified to mean made right, to be found acceptable. It's this idea of a debt being paid in full. Once, once your debts are paid in full, you are then justified. That's how Paul uses the word justified. For example, like if you're at a restaurant and the bill comes and, and we're having dinner together and you offer to, to pay the bill. Thank you, that's so kind of you. And you pay the bill um, and then you look at me and you say, we're good. What are you saying? You're saying our debts have been paid. We're good, we're free to go. We can, we can leave knowing that, that we are completely justified in leaving. Now James uses the word justified as verification that we've been made right. So let's say we're out to dinner, and, and, I, and I don't know that you're going to pay the bill, so I know the bill's about to come, and I go to the bathroom. Now, I wouldn't really do this, but let's just say in this story, that's what I do. And so while I'm in the bathroom, you get the bill, you pay the bill, I come back out, and then you say, we're good. And then I could say to you, okay, are, are you sure we're good? And another way I could say that is um, justify that we're good, right? Prove to me that we're good. Now, I wouldn't say that because that's weird. Like, that's an awkward, that's an awkward conversation to have. But, but what I'm saying is justify the statement that we're justified. Show me that we're good. And how would you do that? Well, you'd produce the receipt. Now, the receipt itself isn't how we are justified or made right. It simply points to our justification. 
that we have indeed had our debt paid in full. And so it's appropriate to use the word justify to mean verify. Verify to me my justification. So Paul is talking about paying the bill, but James is talking about the receipt of the bill that's already been paid. Paul is using the word justified in a declarative sense, while James is using the word justified in a demonstrative sense. Philip Melanchthon was Martin Luther's best friend, and, uh, and he, drove, he drove Martin Luther crazy. In fact, uh, Martin Luther said of Philip, he, he would often say to Philip, why don't you go and sin so that you have something to repent of when you come to church? Like, he was just like so good, and it drove Martin Luther crazy because he said, no one can be that good. But Melanchthon was just a good guy. And Melanchthon probably loved James. Um, and, uh, and, and I think he probably loved James because he understood it in a way that I think Martin Luther couldn't get to. This is what Melanchthon said about that verse, verse chapter 2, verse 24. He said, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by a faith that remains alone. See, he got it. He got that what James is talking about is not a declarative justification He's, he's talking about a justification that, it, that, is, that is seen, demonstrated through our works. See, Paul is talking about the difference between faith and no faith, and James is talking about the difference between dead faith and living faith. James is showing us in this passion, passage how we know we're good, how we know, in fact, we have been justified, how we know that our debts have completely been paid. He is showing us the receipt. But before we look at the receipt, James also tells us what's not a receipt. What's not a receipt proving our justification. Verse 19, let's look at that one again. It says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Um, I was reading one commentary on James, and it was like an older commentary. Um, and the commentator said, this is an example of James teaching us how to be gentlemanly. Uh, we, we notice a positive before we tell the negative. But that's, that's so dumb. That's not what James is doing. He's not being gentlemanly. He's being sarcastic. This is Holy Spirit-inspired sarcasm. He's saying, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe that. See, James is saying, if you want to look for a receipt, a receipt is not your right doctrine. It's not good theology. See, James was writing to a, to a group of Jewish Christians. And he knew this letter would be shared in synagogues throughout the region. And he was making a point that being Jewish wasn't enough. See, the Jewish people knew God's word. In fact, many of them had most of the Old Testament completely memorized. And they all would have known the Shema. And, and James is actually making a direct correlation to the Shema because the Shema says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So when he says, you believe that God is one, good. See, he's writing to a group of people who believed that they were good because of their right doctrine. So if you've grown up in church or, um, or you, 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 know, you, you say you believe in God, which about 85% of Americans say they believe in God, if your family's a Christian, that's all wonderful things, but it's not your receipt. It's not verification of your justification. It's not assurance that you have living faith. Jonathan Edwards 
Another old guy, old dead guy that I quote a lot, the Puritan pastor um, who, who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, once preached a sermon on, on this verse, verse 19, that he titled, True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. This guy, he really knows how to, how to get a sermon title, right? Um, and so, so he writes this sermon about how you can distinguish true grace from what a demon experiences. And in the sermon, Jonathan Edwards says this, He says, beware of your right doctrine, for the demons have attended the highest divinity school in the universe, the heavens of heaven, for they have been in the throne room of God. They know more sound doctrine. They know more of God than the greatest saint who ever lived. See, right doctrine doesn't prove that we're good. Right doctrine doesn't prove that we've been justified. Now, it's not that right doctrine isn't important. It is, but it's not the receipt because a demon could produce the exact same receipt. Spurgeon says there are demons, uh, that demons are very orthodox, that he doesn't know what church they belong to, but there are some in every church. Demons have right theology. So that can't be what brings us assurance when we're wondering, have we measured up? Are we acceptable in God's sight? Going back to verse 19, James tells us the demons not only believe who God is, but that belief causes them to shudder. What's he saying there? Well, he's saying demons respect the power of God, that they respect the greatness of God, that they are scared of God and of what he can do. Now, what that means is that it's possible to know God is great to know he is all-powerful, to know that he has the ability to punish and to bless. And that, that knowledge might cause us to alter our behavior. But that altered behavior in a response to a, to a shuddering of God is not our receipt. It doesn't prove that we have living faith. Hell-bound legalists can love James and still be hell-bound. Their behavior can be altered, but it's not the result of a living faith. It's simply a shuddering of God. Martin Luther's self-harm was a shuddering before God. Not only that, his good works were too. I mean, this man lived a life of self-denial. He was constantly serving others, but all of it was a shuddering. It wasn't until he experienced the grace of God that Martin Luther found living faith. Some of you I know are shuddering. I met with a, I have a, I have a buddy who is a, who's reading through the Gospels right now because he's trying to figure out what he believes and, and who Jesus is. And, and we met this week to kind of talk about some of the stuff he's been reading. And, um, and while he was talking, he, he was shuddering. And, and I, I hadn't read the Gospels in a long time uh, in, from, the, from the vantage point or thinking of like God's judgment. But as he was reading through the Gospels and what, is, what, G, what Jesus says is clearly expected of us, it caused him to shudder. And, and he started telling me about how he's going to try to change his life so that he won't be punished by God. But he was missing the invitation of Jesus. He was missing an invitation that says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He was missing the invitation of Jesus that the apostle John tells us about in his first letter when he says, don't sin. My dear brothers and sisters, don't sin. But if you do sin, 
Know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. See, it's possible to have a tremendous doctrine and live a very good life trying to get better, trying to make sure that, that our good outweighs the bad on the cosmic karmic karma scales, but that's not proof of a living faith. So how do we know that we have living faith? What justifies our justification? Where's our receipt? Well, it's, it's in seeing if we move towards brokenness and humility. That's the receipt that James tells us. That's what he says proves that we have been justified, that we become people who move towards brokenness and humility. A lot of us think the, the sign of living faith is, is, is that we stop sins of commission which just means stop doing the things that you know are bad. So, so you know, if, you, if you're murdering people and you become a Christian, you should stop murder. Like, that should not be, you know, part of your life moving forward. But that's not what James says. James doesn't say, you will know that you are justified if you stop doing all these bad things. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, you know you have living faith when you stop sins of omission which means doing the, the good that you should do, like flossing, right? A healthy life as opposed uh, to a diet. You know, a diet is all about taking away the bad stuff, but a healthy life is about pursuing the good things. And James says the good works that justify our justification, that verify that we have indeed been saved, that shows that we're good, that our bill is paid, is that our our good works are works that are outward focused, that aren't about ourselves, that aren't focused inwardly on, on fixing all of our own sins. It's about outward work. Christian growth is always others focused. That's why here at Summit we say we, we long, we, we desire to be transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. Without the for the sake of others, we're nothing more than a, than a pyramid self-help scheme. Listen, we improve, we improve when we stop fixating on our need to improve. You and I, we improve when we stop fixating on our need to improve. I quote Steve Brown a lot with this one particular quote. It's because it's one that I need to hear all the time. The only people who ever get any better are the people who know if they never get better, Jesus will still love them. It's knowing that truth, that truth of Jesus' love for us that can free us to be others-focused, where we don't have to self-obsess anymore. We don't have to constantly be worried about our own performance before God. We can be free to know we're justified. We can go out and give and give and give and serve in whatever ways God opens up for us. I once heard someone say, sinning less won't necessarily help you love people more, but loving people more will help you sin less. If you're focused on sinning less, that, ne that won't necessarily help anybody else. But if you focus on other people, if you start focusing on loving other people, you will sin less. The example James gives us in this passage is of a poor person in need. And last week we, we heard that this was an issue to that, particular, uh, to that particular church that James was writing to, to those early Jewish Christians. 
that poverty was a big issue and, and putting people who had wealth up in places of prominence was happening all the time. So James is, is taking an idea and then he's giving them a very specific example for which they can relate to. But our circumstances aren't much different. In fact, the amount of people in our city, in Orlando, living below the poverty line is like 25%. So even though this is a specific example um, that, that's meant to be universalized, you and I can take this specific example and realize that it's for us too. Because at it is the heart of justifying our justification. Our receipt is our response to poverty. The scariest thing Jesus ever said, and this was one of those things that kept me up at, at, at night as a teenager, was Matthew 25, when he said, on judgment day, there will be people who come before me, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they'll be like, what, why, why? And they'll say, well, because when I was hungry, you didn't give me food. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was ill or in prison, you didn't come to my aid. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying the exact same thing that James is talking about. If you love Jesus, if you know his love for you, if you know what he's done for you, then when you encounter poverty, when you encounter any kind of brokenness, you will move towards it. If you don't, he says, then you've missed it. You haven't actually understood my love for you. Therefore, your faith is not yet living. It's still dead. It's not if you move towards poverty, you will be saved, but your receipt says that your debt has been paid, that you're loved and accepted by faith through, through Christ alone as you move towards brokenness and humility. When we see Jesus Christ becoming poor for us, we see him becoming powerless for us, when we see him marginalized for us, for him taking on injustice, for him dying on the cross in our place, we become people who can't help but move towards brokenness and humility. If we actually really believe our justification, we can't look at anyone and say, hey, you should pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You got yourself into this mess. You should be able to get yourself out. We didn't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We, we can never look at anyone in any circumstance and say you are undeserving. Because spiritually speaking, we are all undeserving. So how you and I, how we know we're good, how we know our bill has been paid, that our justification has been justified, is that when you and I, when we encounter poverty, we can't help but move towards the brokenness and humility. But what if the person that we encounter is not physically in poverty? What if they're morally or spiritually impoverished? What's our reaction? If it's indifference or it's judgment, that's a sign of dead faith, not living faith. When I was a youth pastor, I, uh, I met a, a young man who was in college who had grown up in a church and, and, and been very involved in his youth group. And he actually led worship a lot of Sundays in his church. And when he went off to college, he'd, he started kind of living uh, in, in a way that his, his church didn't approve of. And, um, and they, they kind of completely cut him off. And, and so he was, he was having coffee with me. And, um, and I remember he, he wasn't mad at the church at all. It wasn't like, oh, that church. Um, but he was really sad. And I remember him saying to me, I know I'm messy. 
And he said, and I, and I know, I, I, you know, I don't even know what I think about all the choices that I've made. And I know that to welcome me back would be awkward and, and maybe cause some other problems. And, and, and I get all that. He said, but I just wish I could. I just wish I could be welcomed back. And, I, and that conversation, I remember, uh, has just has so stayed with me because I thought, how could any of us turn away anyone knowing that God has never turned away us. So you want assurance that your faith is living. You want to know that, that you really are considered good in God's eyes. Where's your receipt? It's your reaction to poverty, physical, moral, and spiritual poverty. How do you react to all those different types of poverty? Do you move towards the brokenness and humility? That's it. Moving towards brokenness and humility is faith that is not a faith alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. James lands his point about good works of faith by pointing to two Old Testament people, um, Abraham and Rahab. And I love this. I love this because, because James chooses as his example of people who do good works an adulterous liar, and a prostitute. The story of Rahab, Rahab the prostitute, is a story um, that's found in Joshua 2. So Moses, um, you know, is, you know, went to Pharaoh and set the people free, crossed the Red Sea, um, and they were off to the promised land. Um, but Moses died before they were able to go on the promised land. And so now Joshua is in charge of taking God's people into the promised land. Um, but, but it's inhabited by people that are very scary, um, that the Israelites think, oh, no, these people are going to demolish us. Um, and so Joshua sends some spies into Jericho, the, the big city Jericho, to kind of scope it out so that they can decide whether or not or how they're going to attack this city. And while they're there, word gets out to the king that there are these spies. Well, Rahab, the prostitute, hides them, protects them uh, from the king. That was, her, that was her good work. Why did she do that? Well, if you read the, the encounter with Rahab and these spies, she talks about how she had heard about this God who set slaves free. Now imagine you're Rahab. Imagine you're, you're a woman in, in a culture that devalued women. You're, you're a woman who, who essentially is a slave, who, who, who makes her living off allowing her body to be used and abused by, by men who don't care about her. And then all of a sudden she hears about there's a God who can liberate, who can set free slaves. And that that's his heart. His heart is to set people free. See, Rahab's good works were a response to knowing a God who saves. It was a response to knowing a God who can set people free. I don't know if we have any prostitutes in this room. Um, we might. But I do know that there's a lot of sin in this room. I know. I know that I have a lot of sin in my own life and in my heart. And there's something so beautiful about James using Rahab because what he's telling all of us is that no matter if you are the vilest of the vile, no matter if you are uh, the most discarded by, by your community, no matter if you are the most broken of the broken, God delights in using people. 
that you and I, that we are not disqualified from being used by God because you and I are not disqualified from being loved by God. And Rahab would go on to be an, one of the ancestors of Jesus. When Matthew writes the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of his gospel, Rahab is listed. She's one of, one of five women that is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So she essentially is a mother of the one who would come to save the entire world. And then you got Abraham, our adulterous liar. Abraham is so fascinating. One, one, sometime we're going to do just a, a study on Abraham because I love the life of Abraham. And Abraham's so interesting because God comes to Abraham and he says, all right, Abraham, I've chosen you and your descendants to be my people. And in fact, you are going to be a blessing to everyone else. I'm going to use you to bring, to bring joy and peace and hope and love to the furthest ends of the earth. And, and, and God keeps coming to Abraham and he makes these promises to Abraham and Abraham believes for a little while, but then he starts thinking, I don't think this is really gonna happen. And so, so God says, I'm gonna give you all these descendants and, uh, and Abraham's old and his wife's old and he thinks, well, that's not really gonna happen. And so after he waits a little while, he decides, I'm just gonna go sleep with, with, with my wife's servant and, and she can have a baby for us. So he, he stops trusting God. But God eventually does provide him with a son, with his wife, Sarah. And then God says, I want you to go into this land, this promised land. I'm going to give you this land. And he believes it. He starts to move and he starts to take all his stuff. But then as soon as he thinks like, oh man, I think this king is going gonna, is gonna to harm me for trying to take over his land, he becomes a liar. And, he, and he, he, he says his intentions are different than what they are. He offers his wife to go be in the bedchamber of the king and says that she's his sister. Like, he's just a mess. He keeps doubting the promises of God. But then God comes to him, and this is the story that James brings up in this passage. God comes to him and says, okay, Isaac, or Abraham, I want you to now, now that you've had this son, Isaac, I want you to offer him to me. I want you to sacrifice him for me. And Abraham, he doesn't fight God. He just obeys. And it's weird because Abraham, in just a few chapters before this, in, in, in Genesis 18, he fights with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. He fights for a bunch of people that he doesn't know. But then here in, in chapter 22 of Genesis, God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. And he just says, okay. And we're told he, he takes a three-day journey with his son Isaac, having Isaac carry the wood on his back takes him a three-day journey. They walk up a mountain. All this time, Abraham knows exactly what's going to happen. Isaac has no idea. In fact, Isaac is probably a teenager, and as he's making his way up the mountain with all the wood on his back, he starts to realize, like, they didn't bring a lamb. They didn't bring something to sacrifice. And he says, hey, Dad, where's the, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, uh, the Lord will provide. That's the only answer he gives. And then they get up on the mountain, and and Abraham then lays out all the wood. Probably Isaac helps him, lays out all the wood. And then we're told Abraham takes Isaac and straps him down on the altar. And then we're told he, 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 he gets out a knife. And then we're told that, that the voice of God says to him, stop. Do not harm your son, your one and only son, because now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your one and only son from me. And then God tells him, there's a, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Go and offer that ram instead in place of your son. 
Now, Martin Luther did not like the book of James because it didn't mention the substitutionary atonement of Christ, which just means that Christ came and lived the life that you and I were supposed to live and then died the death that we deserve because we haven't lived that perfect life. And because he died in our place, you and I are now made acceptable before God. He has switched places with us. He has, he has acted as our substitute. Now remember, James is writing to a bunch of Jewish, Christian, or Jewish Christians yeah, who, who, would have, who would have known very well the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I imagine that these Jewish Christians thought that that story was crazy. Because I think we do. I mean, this is one of those stories that, that people who aren't familiar with the Bible or Christianity read it and say, I'm out. That is ridiculous. That, who would want to, to worship a God like that? That is so barbaric. That doesn't even make sense. Why would God even ask that? So I assume that these Jewish Christians always kind of wondered, what in the world was that Abraham story all about? But now here, as James is offering this story, maybe it clicked. Maybe in the context of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, this story that was so weird, that was so barbaric, made sense. That the story wasn't, in fact, about what God asked Abraham to do for him, but what God was ultimately going to do for Abraham and for us. Abraham's good works was a response to a God who provided. He told Isaac, God will provide. His good works were in response to knowing a God who saves. Like Isaac, God in flesh, Jesus would walk up a mountain called Calvary. And like Isaac, Jesus would carry wood on his back. And like Isaac, Jesus would be strapped down, nailed to a cross. But unlike Isaac, there would not be a ram caught in the thicket because he himself would become the ram for us. That is living faith. Jesus moved towards our brokenness. Jesus moved towards us even though it was messy, even though it makes it awkward and, and hard at times, even though we let him down time and time again, even though moving towards us meant he would have to die. Our good works are a response of seeing Jesus as our substitute. Jesus as being the source of our justification. If you realize that your, your beliefs or your good works are really just a shuddering, that it's not coming from a, from a place of living faith, that it really is dead, the response to this, the next right step to this isn't, okay, now I'm gonna go and try harder. I'm gonna try to get better in these areas. It's simply to accept the invitation of Jesus to be your substitute, to be your righteousness, to allow him to be your justification. Because when he's your justification, a receipt of good works will follow. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for James. I thank you for the way in which he wrote so that we could see things more clearly, so we could see better, that we could look at our justification and see more clearly what it is that that means for how we live. 
that we can now walk in the good works that you have laid out for us because we know that we're accepted and loved because of what Jesus has done in our place. So Father, take your word and and move it deeply into our hearts so that we can be people who have a living faith, who can live a life of responding to the glorious good news of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.